I'm Janet Roper, and you're listening to the Reawaken Right Relationship Podcast. Welcome to this place where we have conversations about creating, nurturing, and sustaining right relationship with all sentient beings. Thank you for listening to this podcast and a hearty dose of gratitude to those who have supported this podcast by making a financial contribution. I delight in providing this on-the-house offering to you, and it is made possible for me to continue to do so thanks to the voluntary support from listeners such as yourself. To become a sustaining member or to make a one-time contribution, you will find the link in the episode notes. Thank you so much for your support. I'm delighted to have the chance to visit with our guest today, who also happens to be a good friend, a colleague, and my mentor, and that is Kelly Harrow. Kelly and I cover numerous topics from rabbit holes to who's in the driver's seat to sacred activism, working with ancestors in runes. Kelly is an author and modern shaman in North Carolina. A lifelong intuitive and death walker, she has worked with a local and international client base since 2000. Through Solentin Arts, her work fosters boots-on-the-ground animistic community engagement and real-world application of shamanism in the everyday. Through mentorship, she teaches others to ethically build a unique path of animism and shamanism in support of ancestral and spiritual truths, to connect to the spirits of the land, and to create social justice through sacred activism. Kelly is author of several books, including Runic Book of Days. She writes the weekly rune and hosts the podcast, What in the Weird, and an interactive runes community on Patreon. Kelly, thanks so much for being on our podcast today. It's really a delight having you and truly a pleasure having you and being able to talk to you in depth about some of the things that we've talked about in general and then that I've learned from you from being in your intensive. So before we go any further, um, tell me what right relationship means to you. Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, Right relationship for me is the only way to go. I I don't handle um, being given guidelines even very well with reason. And so I have had to cultivate my own relationship to things to feel like I have an avenue or a trajectory to go down. And I realize as I've gotten older, some of that is a little too insecure. Some of that is not grounded, you know, in faith or in um, wisdom. And so the parts of that that have not served me, I've had to reevaluate, which is its own sort of right relationship, direct relationship. And so now it's more of an experience of finding relationship where things want to have them with me, as opposed to just feeling like I had to force it out of, you know, necessity for a long time, not having solid elders, not having good guidelines. 
and now you know I'm an adult I don't get to play those cards anymore and so it's it's more about letting the relationships show up and kind of following their lead and setting my boundaries where I need to have them and honoring boundaries where I need to so if I'm understanding you correctly, when you're talking about right relationship, you're talking about with all things in general and not just with people. You're taking more of an animistic view towards it. Absolutely. It is a completely animistic um, experience on my part. And it always has been. I don't know how to do it differently. Mm -hmm. uh, can you explain to our listening audience what you mean by animistic approach and animism in general, actually? Let's just go with that. Let's go with that. Animism is the experience of all things having life force or a soul or, you know, whatever I think that you would want to plug into that consciousness. And within that consciousness, they have agency. They have the ability to make choices about their own experience and different um, life force has different levels of agency. So from my perspective in, which has largely been shaped by modern shamanism, everything has a soul. And in that awareness that everything has a soul, we can communicate at that level. We can listen, we can respond, we can initiate. And there is a sense of equality and um, support and interconnectedness at that level of awareness. And so as an animist, I carry the perspective that I'm not just moving through life, I'm moving among life everywhere I go. My, my whole motif is that I am among. And um, my job in that movement is to pay attention, is to observe, to remain open, and um, you know where I need to show up and be active to do so, where I need to tread carefully and not leave much of a trail to do so, and to ask for what I need as I move through spaces as well. So the way I'm hearing you is what you're saying is Kelly is not always in the driving seat. That's right. And, and that's a hard lesson a good, for people. It is hard. It's been hard for me. Well, and this kind of harkens back to your original question, but I'm a survivor of childhood assault. And so what gets ingrained when you're a little kid who is not protected and the rules for how all of life is supposed to work don't serve you, you take over that role. I mean, you drive every damn where, even before you have a license, even before you should, you know, be in the car or see over the wheel. So you're right in that it was really difficult for me to learn that that's not my job. That I'm not here to just, you know, drive like a bat out of hell. My job is to um, show up and really that's it. And when you talk about the difference of driving like a bat out of hell and showing up in my body, I feel the difference of how you're experiencing that, how you're expressing that. Because when you talk about showing up, I felt my whole body just relax. There's definitely a finesse to that knowledge. And I think we all get there in our own way, in our own timing. And for me, it has been 
one of the healthiest things I think I could figure out is that I don't have to do everything. Uh, it's not my job to show up for everything, but to realize my boundaries and that what I am actually called to show up for that I do. And that's a big thing, knowing what your boundaries are and knowing what is your gig and what is not your gig. Yeah. And that can be a lifelong lesson. Yeah. 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 So right relationship is not something, at least in my experience of it, it's not something that I've developed overnight. You know, like one night it, I didn't have it and the next night everything was hunky-dory perfect. But it was um, a growing in consciousness, a growing in awareness of where I am in relationship to everything else and where everything else is in relationship to me. I love using the um, analogy of a kaleidoscope. To me, that's right relationship. I like that too. I love the yeah. visual of it and the interconnectedness. And the different colors. I love mm -hmm. colors. And each piece is its own thing. But when you put it alongside these others in all these different ways, so many other things come out of it. Yeah. And both of us being musicians, you know, we can easily go down that rabbit hole of making an analogy of we're not the conductor of the orchestra. We're the oboe player or the uh, trumpet player or the percussion player or the triangle, the violinist, all coming together to make this beautiful um, sound or this beautiful weaving of what is life. And sometimes you're the sheet music. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it, you know, I mean, it's, it just changes and having that flexibility to realize what you need to be in any given situation or dynamic is far more liberating than thinking you have to be the whole affair. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, there can be such a breath of release and a breath of relief with that, that you don't have to do the whole gig yourself. But in a do it yourself society, I think that's, um, can be a difficult lesson to learn and a difficult lesson to take in and a different a difficult yeah. awareness to come to also i think it is and i mean I, I know that men face their own dynamics in that um you know cultural expectation but women are ingrained from day one to put other people's needs first like even at a non-verbal level even at an unconscious level that we don't even realize we're filtering through our own stuff to understand what the people around us need. Um, yeah. And I mean, we don't even realize we're doing it. And so we have to come to this place of understanding what that looks like in our lives and how it's serving us before we can even say, Oh, and this is what I need to change. I remember when I was growing up, um, we'd have these family reunions and all of the uncles, all the men were served first, and then the kids. And if there was anything left over for the women, then they got the leftovers. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And um, that was really a, a bonk on the head when I realized that that was the, the story that I grew up with and how that does not serve me. And as a child, part of you is going, that's my future. And I don't want to go there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff I think that we take in from our, our elders that just, mm, no, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. Nope, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't serve me. Maybe it did. Maybe there was a time in my ancestry where it had to be like that. But, you know, no longer. Not right now. 
What do you see as the responsibility that people have when they are developing right relationship? Well, I think probably the classic response across the board is to, to not have your ego in the driver's seat for that. But, you know, we don't even really culturally know what that looks like either. We don't, you know, we don't, we don't really have a good understanding of what ego is. And, you know, one of the things that the new age has done is to talk about how you need to banish your ego. You need to get rid of it. You need to um, completely extract it from who you are. But your ego is there for a reason. It, if, you, if you extract the ego from yourself, then you're not going to know when to hit the brakes. You're not going to know when to make a left turn. That your ego is there to protect your body, to give you common sense, essentially. And so I feel like we have a steep learning curve in understanding how to be an ego-balanced, ego-responsible person but be able to do that from a place that is not just self-serving because that's what people think of when they hear ego, like, well, you've got a big ego. And they think that that means, Oh, you know, he always puts himself first. He's always, he's arrogant, but people who constantly remove themselves have big egos. Also people who constantly omit themselves, they're thinking of themselves first also. It's just in a different way. And so, you know, I feel like probably the biggest responsibility to forming right relationship is understanding where you are in your ego development and, and even understanding what that means so that you have the proper boundaries to know when to protect yourself, to know when to say no, to, to when a boundary needs to change, but also at the same time to just kind of be able to be engaged at the level that you need to be and bring the strengths and gifts that you have. And what would you say is the first step to doing that? I think um, the, the phrase that came to mind when you asked that is understanding your panic buttons, ah. like understanding the situations that on the inside give you a sense of, should I really be here? Is this really right for me? And, and in this case, is this relationship right for me? Mm -hmm. Or what is my role in this relationship? Is, is the role I'm playing the right one? Not so much is the relationship yes or no, but am I playing out the right role in this relationship? Being able to pay attention to your body sensations, to you know those inner tremors, I think they're deeply informative and somatic sensing is a huge part of, of how I function as an animist, but it's also a big part of my teaching in getting people acclimated to their own barometers for what's right and, and potentially not working for them or what is wonderful and what's blissful. Um, I think the first step is being able to read your body's senses because when you know what you feel at a body level and the emotions that that evokes, then that's deep information that tells you how to function in that relationship.
Now, this might sound like um, a simplistic question, but so many times we can get lost in our head thinking, I should be doing this. So there's all the shoulds that are piled on um, and that are standing in between us and what our body is feeling. How do you get rid of the shoulds? I think it's challenging because the shoulds are what we're conditioned by. I mean, very few of us are raised in an atmosphere that says, trust yourself. And should, you know, in this context is in some ways a violation of your trust. Um, my classic fallback when I'm working with other people is to go to extreme lengths of self-validation. And one, one of the things, like the scenario that would come up for me a lot when I would have one-on-one um, -on -one sessions with people, intuitive sessions, is they would say, um, I, I'm just, I'm not sure if this really happened. Like I had this vision, but I'm not sure it really happened. Or, well, I'm like, well, then what were you doing? <laughs> like, yeah, what, what, exactly. what do you think was going on? <laughs> but, but what I ask them is, um, you know, what do you think was happening compared to what? Like compared to what else? What is this standard, this invisible magical standard, standard that you're holding it up to? And we kind of go through this exercise of learning radical self-validation where you start believing every perception that you have. It doesn't matter if that perception is nuts. And the example that I usually give people is, you know, you're standing outside and you look up and all of a sudden the sky is completely purple with pink polka dots and, and your rational mind immediately goes, well, the sky shouldn't look that way. That's, that's not right. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the sky. There's all these reasons to judge why your perception is incorrect. Even though your eyeballs sent that, you know, your, your brain sent that through your body and you, your whole body responded that with that answer. Instead of questioning that, just go, okay, for that moment, it was purple with pink polka dots. Even if the very next second, it was gray, slightly overcast, looking a little misty, the second before it wasn't. And, but you don't have to judge both of those seconds against each other. They can exist freely, independently of each other, and you still perceived both of them. And everybody kind of looks at me like I'm crazy when I say that. Like, what the hell does that have to do with self-validation? But they don't understand until they start to really break it down on a daily basis how often they experience perfectly rational things that they dismiss. Like, that guy just lied to me. Well, maybe I heard him wrong. I mean, when, right, when, right. You, when you start thinking in terms of not the sky and what color things should be, but how this person just treated me, you start to realize how often you invalidate yourself and your own perception. And when you can start to turn that around, your confidence builds. And when you become confident, you become deeply intuitive, which means you're more likely to have really good direct relationships. I just want to go on record that I remember when you told me that about the purple sky. And I, I frankly was just going, what the hell have I got myself in? I know. Great. About? Kelly, I got to go. Talk to you later. Goodbye. <laughs> I think everybody does at yeah, first. Yeah. 
And I think that's a perfectly normal reaction because we're not giving that permission. And so many of us, I think, aren't aware that that's an option, that we can live in the very second and trust with what's in that very second, yet it might be different from what was before and it might be different from what's coming up again. Each second is a distinct yeah. relationship. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, going with the flow, taking it to the extreme, so to speak. It is radical. I, yeah. I, I mean, I agree that it is. And the first time someone suggested that to me, that, you know, you have to validate your every perception before you really start to be confident in your unseen life, I was just like, I'm sorry, come again. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't understand what you're saying because nobody had ever said that to me before. It, it wasn't part of my lexicon to even understand the sentence. I'm glad you said that because my experience when you mentioned that was I understood the words, but it was like, I was just kind of in a way hearing blah, 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 blah. Right. And it's actually taking that step into what you were talking about into it, experiencing it for myself, that I could start to understand what was going on and what you meant by it. Yeah. And, you know, it did help me immensely um, to have you as a mentor there, you know, not telling me what I was experiencing, but opening up the possibility of everything that I was experiencing was extremely valid, which, which no one had done that before. I'm really glad that we could do that, that we could have that yeah experience together yeah yeah it's just it's life-changing when people start going into right relationship um it starts with i think ourselves and then just kind of spreads out because when we're in right relationship with ourselves um and accepting what who we are at that moment in time then it becomes easier to see right relationship played out in the relationship we have with others. And by others, I don't mean just humans. I mean sure. all sentient beings, including teacups. It does. It, uh, oh, yeah, especially teacups. Especially teacups, yeah. And you, I think the hard part of that, it, when it starts to peel out and it, it becomes a way of life, it's not just this personal you know, practice that you're doing in a bubble, you start to realize what's at risk if you if you don't do it and you start to realize that not everybody's coming with you and yeah. so some relationships fall away some and and rightfully so but you know some people are not going to make that leap with you and that that can be a really challenging part of um animism i think yeah i agree with you on that and it is difficult it is difficult. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the shoulds. Well, I should make this relationship work. I should be responsible for this. I should be able to make this person want to come along with me when that's actually not our gig at all. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you do um, in your work is that you are a sacred activist. Um, can you tell us what you mean by that and how you put that into the everyday of your life, how you work with that? I was raised with this perspective. It didn't necessarily stick. I wasn't necessarily good at it, but I was raised in this, this prayerful space where, you know, prayer is where you ask for things. Prayer is, you know, this synergy point where you are, 
with whatever your perception of divinity is and it's sort of part wish list sort of part um you know magic i don't know and there's a couch involved and <laughs> you ask for what you want it goes somewhere into the ether and maybe it happens i mean that was the way prayer was presented to me very passive and um somebody else's problem like all i have to do is just show up and say the words and it became evident to me in adulthood that nothing works that way it takes a lot more elbow grease than just you know putting something on a wish list however divine you want to make that process of being but it became vividly clear to me over the last like five years that it is my job to make sure that whatever I'm asking for out of my life that other people who need it are getting it also. And it, it's not just my, um, it's, it, you know, it is a headspace. It is an adjustment to say, this is not just about me, you know, back to the ego stuff again, but also in how you live, how you form relationships and how you present your time here, you know, to the world in a way that says everything that I do has to add up to be beneficial to community. It just has to. And again, it doesn't mean that I can save everybody. It doesn't mean that I'm good at everything, but the, the things that I am here to do, whatever I feel called to do, I am required to do that for the people who need it. And for me, that has taken the form of, deep ancestral work, uh, death, death work, death walking, and teaching other people how to create their spiritual paths in a way that aligns with what they say they stand for in their everyday lives, with the principles, the beliefs that they say they stand for. So in other words, you can pray sitting on the couch and, and do that wish list approach, but you have to get off the couch and you have to show up for people in community, whether that's volunteer work, whether that's a literal individual that, that you can intervene for them in a way to help them. If it's amplifying other people's voices, you otherwise may not be heard. If you have a skill set that needs, you know, that's in dire need of being taught in the community, you know, it, whatever it is that each of us is good at, your talent is your duty. That's kind of one of my new slogans. If you're good yeah. at it, then it's your duty to do that here and to bring that to the people who need it. And every time you do what you're called to do, you're changing the trajectory of people around you, of your community. It's not just for you. It's for other people's lives who are touched by what you do. And, you know, the other component of animism is everything is connected. And so you can do that mindfully and, and with uh, not just good intentions, but, but with actions that back up those intentions. Or you can just kind of like do it and it gets done however it gets done. Part of our responsibility is realizing the mindful component of our spirituality. Who is impacted by what we do, what we say who we give our money to, what we support, and being able to really ground that into spiritual practice, centering the everyday actions in a spiritual way that 
heals us and through healing us elevates everybody and everything in our community. Again, it's one of those places where you're, you're doing this thing that you need for yourself because you have to cover your own bases, but you can cover your own bases in a way that benefits people around you, that benefits other community. And I feel like that is our job in sacred activism. We all have some job, some role to play in sacred activism. What kept coming to me as I was listening to you was that there is a place for no in sacred activism. Because what I've witnessed in your work um, is that you have started saying no to certain things. And in saying no to that certain thing, it reminds me of Gandalf, you shall not pass. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's what it always brings to my mind. And when we take that authority, no, you shall not pass, then that I feel is putting out into the world um, the animism and the activism. Like you say, there's got to be elbow grease behind it. But there also has to be a no to what is no longer working. Yeah, I have had to make significant changes in how I bring my soul tending practice to other people over the last two or three years, as you know, and you know, it's not where I planned for it to be. It's not what I wanted it to be, but what I'm finding is the places that I have had to cut back to honor my own boundaries has opened this territory for me to focus on death walking and ancestral work and you know, the intensive and my Patreon community way more and better than I was before. Right, right. I hear what you're saying with that. And it's bringing that authenticity and that authority to it also. It has in a way yeah. that I never expected well, I think that circles back to what we were talking about is I'm um, taking the shoulds off and to just being in the moment and each moment is changing. And when we go with that flow of each moment changing in an act, I don't want to say activist, but in an active way, um, instead of a reactive way, we're also creating then. Well, I feel like the, one of the most significant places that all of us can and need to forge right relationship and to be sacred activists is through ancestral work. Ah. It, you know, because all of us have intergenerational trauma. We all have, um, we all have some history of being oppressed and being the oppressor we we have both all of us so in the way that we can take responsibility for how our ancestral lines have um, wounded and been wounded we are changing our perspectives in the present in a way that we create a better space for people who are being oppressed now. It gives us much firmer standing to make choices that do not perpetuate that trauma, which gives us a huge platform of activism. Right. Each and every one of us can be doing that. 
Yeah. And when you say doing ancestor work, are you talking about just hopping on ancestry and checking your, you know, creating your lineage back following that? I think that knowing your ancestry is really helpful, but we don't all have that. And that is part of our history of oppression is that so many of us uh, don't know and we can't know, you know, past a certain point. Uh, if you can know that, it can be helpful, but you don't have to know that. And so there's a great deal of healing that can be done from a more world perspective, a more spiritual perspective of, you know, how can I connect with my ancestors without knowing necessarily who they were in a way spiritually that allows the healing that needs to come down through those lines, that allows that to be done? And how can, in the effect of that healing, I now embody the gifts and the strengths and the wisdom of my fit ancestors and carry that forward in everything that I do in my time here. How do I become a fit ancestor myself? Exactly. So you're not only looking backwards, but you're looking forward to how you can be an and a fit ancestor to your children, your grandchildren, and um, all the children, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you and I've talked about this before because we both do um, genealogy is that it so much comes through the patriarchal line instead of the matriarchal line. And, and the grandmothers are just, uh, they're lost. They you are. Know, the majority of them. I call them cul-de-sacs. The women in my genealogical history, they're cul-de-sacs because they basically got married, had kids, and you never see them again. They're, they're just these, these loops of beings who just kind of made the next part of the line and that was it. I mean, unless they were a nobility, extremely wealthy, you don't hear from the women. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a soapbox all into itself. It really so, is. It really is. Let's not go down that rabbit hole right now. So in addition to the um, sacred activism that you do and the ancestor work and the death walking, um, you're also an author. And you also work with the runes and you have a new book out, don't you? I do. I do. Runic Book of Days came out in September. So it's been out in a little bit and it's, it's different. It's unlike anything I've written before. And it's unlike um, an approach that anybody else has taken to the runes. It's not unique. It's not original that there are runic calendars, um, there, we have evidence of runic calendars that date quite far back, but what we don't have is a modern practice for how to work with the runes in season. And so, you know, people who are total rune fangirls like myself are familiar with Nigel Pennock's work. He is amazing. He's somebody that I read when I was like 19 and then ended up, you know, working with him to some degree on this book. It was, it was amazing. But he developed a runic calendar based on his hyper distilled study of all of these, you know, what we do know about ancient runic calendars and what we know about how different you know, regions of Northern Europe 
would have honored the seasons? Like what, you know, they don't have the word Sabbaths, but you know, what would have been their holy days and how would they have honored and, um, and brought those through in their observation of the runes. And so nobody had really taken his body of work and said, how did, how can we do that now? Like, you know, here's all this sort of you know, mathematical information about what they used to do, but how can we do that now? And so that's what Runic Book of Days is. It's moving through the Elder Futhark in a runic calendar fashion, but with this sort of guided meditation, um, personal initiation at the Sabbaths kind of progression. So and I never thought of it like this before. So sort of, sort of what you've done in that book is you've brought the ancestors of the runes from the past into the present. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah, let's just go for it, okay? <laughs> yeah, you know that as you're working with this, with the, what's been written um, in the books before, you're taking that information, you're taking it, information from the past, bringing it into the present so that it is useful now. It's not just, you know, dusty old stuff from the past. Um, and some people are uncomfortable with that. The, the runes community is deeply academic, and it's also deeply spiritual. And in some cases, those two paths don't cross very well. Mm -hmm. And where they don't cross is adaptation, which is wow. funny, you know, because the Elder Futhark is the original Futhark, and there are multiple ones after. So obviously the cultures of even antiquity said, oh, we have more places we can go with this. But in the modern mind, we're supposed to have like a hard cap on where that evolution stopped and we are not supposed to take it any further. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with people saying don't mess with things. But I'm also really clear and appreciate when other people are clear in saying this is a personal gnosis that I am choosing to share. I'm not saying that it is original to me. I'm not saying that everybody else should do it this way, but here's the spin that I have on this. And here's a way that you can figure out what the spin is for you that keeps these things relevant in right. the way we live now. Right. And it just dawned on me, I should have asked you this a little uh, while ago, but what are the runes? Originally, the runes were an alphabet, and, and they are still evident in our current alphabet. Mm -hmm. And they stayed an alphabet throughout most of Europe, through about um, 200 Common Era. It would have been AD, but we say Common Era now. So they were significant for a long time. They date back as far as like 500 before the common era. So they had a, a decent zenith of um, popularity and use. And they were not used in terms of spiritual tools or divination until like hundreds of years later. That is a relatively late invention of things to do with the runes. But what has made them stay relevant, and this isn't um, unique to the Old Norse culture. There are other cultures that have a mythic 
origin story of how their alphabet came to be, but the story of Odin hanging from the world tree, the Yggdrasil, for nine days. And in that state of ordeal, which we would liken to a shamanic um, like soul travel at this point, mm-hmm. he was given an awareness of the runes that allowed him to bring them back into human consciousness in this way that's sort of like these universal keys, these ways that we can engage these different aspects of life and laws of nature to help us do it better. Right. To become more animistic, so to speak. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And where can people get your book? They can get it at Amazon and at pretty much any online or brick and mortar bookshop. It is available worldwide. And you know what? I will save the people the trouble of having to go online and Googling it. I'll put it in the show notes. How's that? Oh, that is wonderful. Thank you. You betcha. You betcha. Um, Kelly, what would you like to leave the listening audience with? You ask hard questions. (laughs) How many times have you said that to me? (laughs) Every day since day one, since I've known you. Which is not much of an exaggeration. This is the part where I go take a nap. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I used to say that seriously. In the first days of the intensive, Kelly would ask a question. I'm going, and it would literally break my mind. That's the only way I can think to describe it. Exactly. <laughs> break my mind. And I would be going, I can't think. I got to go take a nap. <laughs> you were kind enough to. But then you, you know, would come back with this brilliant answer. So the nap was necessary. The nap was necessary. Yes. For those new little waves to go in my brain. <laughs> Yeah, I think that I would leave people with the the customization of your own direct relationship. It it is completely all customizable. There is no one way it has to fit. There's no one way it has to work. There's no one way that animism has to work. And that's the beauty of it. That's the whole point. And the important part of it it's just that you you stay open, you stay teachable. Yeah, exactly. And would you be willing to tell people how you can work with them? What services you offer? I most often mentor people now. I, I still do some intuitive work with people and some um, soul tending, which would be a shamanic healing work. The bulk of what I do is is mentoring in that, you know, people get their information often directly from their guides, but they, they don't really know how to distill it into an everyday life, you know, way to live it. And so I, I often help people develop rituals around that, help them find relationship with the immediate nature spirits that they live and breathe and walk among every day. I think that is probably the the strength of what I offer people. And I also teach classes that people can do, you know, in their own self-paced studies that I mentor rather significantly to help them learn how to be an everyday animist. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. 
thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's just been a delight to talk to you. It's always a delight talking to you, regardless if we're talking about this uh, sacred activism, animism, or talking about the latest in Instant Pots. It's always a delight to talk to you. <laughs> right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way you just put all that together. Well, you know, it just, boom, that's just, it's those new little brainwaves that you created when I said I had to go take a nap, you know, from all those questions you ask. So thank you for being here. And um, again, it's a delight. Thank you. You betcha. Take good care. Have you ever given any consideration to the impact your words have on beyond human sentient beings? Because it is formidable, let me tell you. That's what we're talking about on next week's episode of the Reawaken Right Relationship podcast. The words we use when referring to other sentient beings reflect our relationship with them and how we then either consciously or unconsciously relate with them. It is time for all people, yep, all people, every one of us, to become intentionally aware of the power of our words, the feelings and the images that those words project and have on other sentient beings. So I hope you will join me on next week's podcast to talk about the languaging that we use. Do you love what you're hearing on this podcast? I sure hope so. And if you are loving it, I ask that you show support by liking it and leaving a comment or review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. You can also show your support by sharing it with your friends and family. And I so appreciate your help. Thank you. I think you'll enjoy the podcast, Everyday Animism, that I co-host with two exceptional women, Kelly Harrow of SoulfulIntentArts.com and Brandis Schnabel of SoulfulFocus.com. In this podcast, we explore all things animism, particularly how animism impacts everyday life. You can find it here at Anchor or on your favorite podcast platform. The 20 plus years that I have spent writing, speaking, podcasting, and sharing what I know with you have all been to support your life and relationship with the animals and the other nature beings you love so dearly. I share what I know and intuit freely, a gift from my heart and spirit to you and the sentient beings of the world. It's a body of work grounded in love and infinite respect for all life because we all do better when all creatures do better. If you find my work helpful, if an article or a podcast has inspired or informed you or expanded possibilities in your world, a donation would be deeply appreciated as a way to show your support. You can make a payment of any amount at paypal.me backslash Janet Roper, or simply go to my website, www.janetroper.com, and at the top you will see a tab that says Make a Contribution, and you can make your contribution there. I thank you very much. Your contribution makes my work sustainable. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you have enjoyed hearing this, remember to subscribe to the podcast on Anchor or iTunes. And if you would like to follow more of my work, please visit www.janetroper.com.